You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, uh, the time of the evening where you join us on Wasail uh, Al-Alam Sadiqa Truthful News. And Alhamdulillah, once again, uh, we uh, look at uh, the mother of all talk shows, uh, George Galloway, who takes on uh, mainstream media and gives you the alternative news. And inshallah, uh, this uh, evening, uh, George Galloway will be talking to Nick uh, ban- Branan. Uh, Branana, yeah, Branana, uh, raging against the war machine, yeah, marching against the uh, White House and going to Capitol Hill and uh, asking the American government uh, to be accountable. And then you will, he will talk to Oli Vargas uh, and uh, talk about uh, Lula's uh, inauguration and uh, much, much more. So sit back, people, and enjoy. The relationship between the state and the private sector in our economy. I want to reset workers' rights to what they once were and always should have been. I want to reset justice in our country so that instead of Julian Assange wasting away in a dungeon, it's the criminals he exposed that are in the dock and on trial and if found guilty, sent to prison for the rest of their lives. All of this is up for debate, of course. You can call the show against war, against NATO aggression, and against the danger of nuclear conflagration. And so, of course, I'm joined by Nick Branagh, the national chair of the People's Party of the United States of America, a man I've long wanted to meet and hope to in person uh, someday soon. Nick Brana, thank you for uh, joining us. We didn't uh, confer before arranging our two events, but it is amazing. It was left uh, thee and me to arrange them. Uh, tell us what you've got going on, when, where, and why for. We are going to Washington, D.C., here in the United States, uh, the Lincoln Memorial, and we are going to rage against the war machine. We are demanding an end to this senseless, suicidal war in Ukraine that our government apparently has endless billions for while not having any funds for people who are living under every bridge in this country, for people who do not have health care, people who don't have food to eat. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go rage against the war machine. We are going to have musicians, rock bands, veterans, speakers, and then we are going to finish it off with a march to the White House, and we're going to deliver our demands directly to warmonger-in-chief Joe Biden. Enough of this war. Enough of the freedoms you're taking from us because of this war. Enough of the billions going to from from our taxpayers to pay for this war, enough of the tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands that you've killed, and enough risking and bringing us to the edge of global nuclear war. Well, very powerfully put, and as you were making that case, I got to wondering, uh, how come in the parliaments, yours and mine, uh, there's no echo of this? Uh, The British Parliament's even worse, actually. At least there are some right-wing Trumpite uh, elements within your parliament uh, who are raging against this war. But in Britain, there is little unanimity. There is actual unanimity behind 
the NATO war in Ukraine. And yet, as you describe it, the opportunity cost of all that money we've spent on the war of uh, the homeless people, the hungry people, the jobless people, the poor people, the underpaid people, the people who can't get ahead, can't get a house, they're the ones who paid the price for the uncountable billions, because nobody's counting it, certainly nobody's auditing how it's spent. How come in the political class there's absolutely no echo of any of this? Well, I was amazed to learn about a month ago that a version of what played out here in the United States, when the progressives here, the squad, AOC, briefly, meekly approached Biden and the other Democrats, the corporate Democrats, asking them, will you please negotiate at the same time that you're providing endless billions for war? And that in itself with such a weak and pathetic call but they withdrew it within 24 hours, within 24 hours. And I was amazed to learn that a version of that had happened in the UK as well, within the Labour Party. And so here in the United States, both parties are almost unanimously for war. But incredibly, the Democrat Party is now the party that is the most warmongering, always when Trump was in office, giving Trump more money than he asked for for the military industrial complex, giving adding tens of billions of dollars to the military uh, to the military budget, which is eight hundred and fifty billion dollars here in the United States now. And also, of course, having perfectly unanimous support for the war. Unit every single package of support up to this latest one, this additional 50 billion, every single Democrat voted for it. And they sh they talked about it with pride. Even the progressive caucus, which was supposed to be anti-war, even Bernie Sanders, they talked about it with pride about how they're sending all of this money that could be going back to taxpayers, that could be helping people in so many other ways. They're sending endless amounts. And so people in this country are getting tired. And like you said, in the United States and the UK, that's where we have to rebel first and foremost, because no other country can end this conflict. When Russia and the U and Ukraine tried to negotiate an end in March, just one month after the invasion, the United States and the UK sabotaged it. And so it's up to people in this country to rise up. And something that we're very concerned about is it's clear that Ukraine is going to lose this war. But what are the neocons going to do when that happens? There, you have Petraeus on the Sunday shows. He's like the errand boy of the CNN delivering the, the I mean, of the CIA, delivering the CIA and the Pentagon's message. And he is talking about a coalition of the willing with Polish or Romanian soldiers or other soldiers that go in once Ukraine has absolutely lost. Now that once they've killed even the children that they're sending to the front lines in Ukraine, that the Zelensky regime is sending. And so what is going to happen at that point when Ukraine loses? Is it going to become a world war because NATO or NATO countries begin sending in their own soldiers with American soldiers, that kind of coalition of the willing? Or is there going to be enough resistance in our countries, the United States and the UK, to prevent that from happening? And that would almost 
certainly lead us to a nuclear war. If you had other NATO countries sending their soldiers, getting into direct conflict with Russia. Russia warned about this, and even NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg warned about this last month, that he fears that this is going to become a direct war between NATO, the U.S., and Russia. And that's why you have even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, demanding, saying, this is insane. We need to negotiate an end to this war now. I'll tell you what, Nick, you only think it's incredible that the Democrats are the most warmongering of the two parties because you're young. And I wish uh, I was as young as you, because all of my life, the so-called Democratic Party has been dripping in blood, tooth and claw from Vietnam, uh, from all of the conflicts of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right up to uh, the Saint Barack Obama and the destruction of Libya, the turning of Libya back into a slave trading nation, uh, the uh, bombing of, uh, of half the world, the sanctioning of the other half, all of these are made in the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, and I'm ashamed to say, as someone who was a member of it for 36 years, that the British Labour Party is in the same position now. The reason no Labour MP can speak out against the war is because they will literally be expelled, suspended, deselected as a candidate. That much has been made abundantly clear to them. Uh, and so when you say, as you correctly did, that if not us, uh, then who? And if not now, then when? This is a British and American war. And if World War Three comes along, it will have been driven by the United States and the United Kingdom. What is it about the Anglo-Saxons, Nick? I mean, ever since the end of the Second World War, when the United States became the global hegemon, took over the reins from the UK, there has been, at, at that time, at the end of the Second World War, the United States had half of global GDP. It was the undisputed military and economic superpower, only country with nuclear weapons. Well, in the last 70 years, there have been some developments. There's a, the rise of other countries, China, Russia, the BRICS nations, and they don't want to be subjugated by an American empire that is running... Uh, uh, waging wars across the world, uh, demanding that every other nation uh, fall in line with the United States. And so now, up to the present, we have the rise of these other countries, but we have these insane neocons in the U.S., at the Pentagon, at the CIA, in the private military contractors that are a part of the deep state that actually runs this country. And they have this delusion that they can somehow maintain global hegemony, American hegemony, with their military power, just as it was with the fall of Rome, trying to hold on to that power desperately and doing whatever it takes. And these people are mar have marched us right up to the edge 
of a nuclear war with Russia. And it is unbelievable that you have people within the U.S. government, within NATO, even warning of that. That's what we see happening. There is there should not be any kind of global hegemonic country, and it most certainly should not be this country. It doesn't benefit the people of the United States. We give up our freedoms. We give up our tax money for it. We give up our, our own soldiers that we've sent to die in these wars, and we kill millions of people abroad. There's nothing to be gained. The only people that gain are the military industrial complex, the corporations that they feed, all of the billions of dollars that are not even leaving the beltway, that are going to Raytheon and Boeing right here, that are going to the Pentagon, and that are going as kickbacks then to the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, the members of Congress who are themselves enriching themselves the stock of these military companies. Those are the only people who benefit. Nobody in the United States benefit. The people of this country don't benefit. The people of the UK don't benefit. And the people of the world most certainly do not benefit. Well, uh, the, the reason we uh, are trying to beat uh, the rising alternative powers on the battlefield is because we cannot beat them in any other field. We cannot beat them economically, we cannot beat them in terms of their science base, their education base, the health of their people, the longevity of their people. My goodness, Cuba, uh, people in Cuba live longer than they do in the United States. Fewer children die in Cuba uh, than die in uh, infancy in the United States. Uh, the the economies of uh, countries like China uh, are so fast overtaking uh, the so-called G7 uh, countries uh, that uh, the only way to stop them is to make war. Uh, the problem is uh, making war runs the risk of, of nuclear conflagration. And I don't think your people or my people have quite woken up to that yet, that the people they are trying to push around are a nuclear-armed group of countries. Uh, fight back against this fading, failing, uh, not even Roman empire. They're doing things, George, that they didn't do, uh, even that were unthinkable during the Cold War. The bombing of nuclear air bases in Russia, which has now happened not once but twice. And the United States, the CIA, the Pentagon have greenlit that bombing of nuclear air bases in Russia. That is truly unbelievable. The degree to which they've, the United States is also surfacing nuclear subs to menace Russia with nuclear weapons. They've deployed the 101st Airborne Division to Romania, to the border with Ukraine. And those soldiers, those American troops are now crossing the border into Ukraine, risking again direct fire between nuclear superpowers. Russia is reevaluating its nuclear posture considering adopting a first strike policy, the kind that the United States has right now, the risk of nuclear war is real and we don't get a practice run. There's only, it will happen once and everybody will die. 
the nuclear winter will kick up millions of tons of soot into the upper atmosphere, block out the sun, kill all agriculture, destroy the food chain. Billions of people will die in the nuclear blasts and then famine and then plague. That's the future that awaits us unless people rise up in the United States and the UK, the two chief aggressor nations, and demand an end to this. And here in the US, we're not just demanding an end to this war, we're demanding an end to the war machine as a whole. We're saying abolish NATO, abolish the CIA, slash the military budget, cut it in half, and end this empire that is threatening to, to kill everyone at this point. So lastly, uh, tell everyone uh, in the U.S. who's watching uh, exactly where they should be, on what day and at what time. So chair of the People's Party of America, I'm deeply grateful for your appearance this evening. Good luck with the event. Now, uh, we've got a poll running about their sexual orientation in the name of GRA. Are you mad? I think that politicians need to think twice about where they're going uh, on this road. They're abolishing women, they're sexualizing children, all in the name of what and for whom, in whose interest. That's what I'd like to know. Uh, Anthony McKen says at least Rishi can put the PM position on his resume for his future job with Goldman Sachs. He'll end up owning Goldman Sachs, not working for them. Uh, and Guy Thomas Gnanko says, I've been only one year at this University of the Airwaves, and yet my knowledge is higher than my PhD peers on mainstream media. Thank you, Professor George Galloway. Thank you, Guy. I really appreciate that as someone that left school as uh, at uh, 16, 17, I went to work in a factory making tires, never been to university. To have you say that to me is very, very touching. Galway Video News says it's very reassuring that you have many fine contributors to the show from the US. Americans are waking up. That's why I want, as early as possible this year, to launch Friday night Moats America. Not, not presented by me, presented by Americans and uh, with the guests chosen by Americans. I'll chip in from uh, time to time and we'll run the back shop, as it were. So it will be the mother of all talk shows, but it will be an American edition at a time more easily accessible by more people in America. Don't forget that 9 p.m. UK time is 4 p.m in New York. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, still morning in California, in Los Angeles and so on. So the timings are, are difficult. We are two nations divided by a common language, but a very, very big time difference. So the Friday night uh, Moats America is my New Year resolution. And if you want to help with that, please, if you're watching on YouTube now, go to Super Chat and make a donation. If you're watching on Rumble or on, uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, all the platforms that we're on, please go to our website, moats.tv, and give on the donate button there. That would be really helpful. You can even make... Go ahead, Sad. 
Hello, uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. Galloway. Uh, this is Saad again. I always love and enjoy listening to your shows. And um, just wanted to say, as being a dual citizen of the United Kingdom, United States, I'm even concerned about uh, the stuff uh, going on in the UK and politics. It seems like, just like every other corner in the world, a lot of uh, politicians such as, uh, such as parliamentary members just don't allow things to happen for the best interest of their people. I personally think, you know, that it would be best if it was just to go how it was 75 or 100 years ago where the royal family just makes the major decisions or foreign policy decisions for the country rather than going through all this other nonsense, you know, because these other, these other doors are always... Oh, like revolving doors, it just comes right back to this same spot, square one again. I personally think that it should just go back to what it was 75 or 100 years ago, where the royal families are making the major decisions along with their advisors. That's really my opinion now. Some people may not like it, but I think that out of the two options, that would perhaps be the best option. And however you... Uh, well, 100, uh, sad, 100, 100 years ago... Uh, the three grandsons of Queen Victoria uh, forced their populations to fight the First World War amidst the gas, the blood and the gore and the carnage of the trenches of World War I. So your formula doesn't have a great track record. Uh, to uh, advocate leaving it to King Charles to decide our, uh, our orientation can only mean you've been away too long in the United States and haven't seen King Charles. Let's go to Ian in Hounslow. Go ahead, Ian. Hello, George. Now, opening uh, your opening speech, um, you talked about the GRA in Scotland and the madness there and how Starmer wants to bring it all over. Now... At the moment, we have the online safety bill being proposed. That was to protect children. And now politicians have muscled in to say, oh, we want to be protected too because people say nasty things about us. And they cited the assassination of Airy Neve and the murder of David Amos. Neither had anything to do with the internet. But they, their arguments are so thin that they would muscle in on an act to protect children and then cite those two unconnected incidents. And that just shows you where we're going. Well, Erin Eve, Eve was killed long before the internet was invented by Al Gore. Absolutely. But these, these people, these, they have, they're living in an irony-free zone, George. Absolutely an irony-free zone. And there is a campaign... Why is Starbuck uh, doing this, Ian? Why is Starmer you know, doing this? I, I mean, I, think I, I get the impression that these people sit and calculate how votes are gained and uh, loss of votes avoided, uh, that they are desiccated calculating machines. But I must be wrong about that because it cannot be electorally possible uh, to advocate for young children to be allowed to, without the knowledge, never mind permission of their parents, reassign their gender whilst at school. 
that cannot possibly be electorally possible, can it? George is a dead cat. The dead cat was the abolition of the House of Lords. The dead cat was, let's make private schools pay VAT. The dead cat is the GRA, because he's got nothing else to offer. You yourself called him wooden. Well, there's the evidence. Great call. Thanks, Ian, in London. Uh, let's go to Wilma in Bath on, I think, a uh, similar kind of subject. Go ahead, Wilma. Hi, Vice President Christina Kirchner, and most people believe the next president of Argentina has been subject to the same kind of fake lawfare that uh, brought down Lula and Dilma, his successor, in the first place. Fake, trumped-up charges, uh, engineered uh, in the U.S. Embassy usually and implemented through the remaining bastions of the establishment and the uh, Washington uh, establishment in Latin American countries and of course in Peru where only so very recently we uh, celebrated the election of a progressive president there. That progressive has been, that president has been brought down again in uh, this time a parliamentary coup d'etat uh, and the masses who elected him are on the streets and being gunned down by the security forces. So uh, traffic is not all one way uh, in Latin America. It's uh, not all rosy or even pink, let alone red. One man who knows more than anybody else uh, on this show, at least in the English language, at least is Ole Vargas. He is the host of Latin America Review and co-founder of Kausachon News. And he joins us now. Oli, thanks. Very good to see you again. I'm uh, right, haven't I? It is a mixed bag, but let's start with the, with the good news. Tell us about Lula and what we can expect now that he's back in the president's house. Hi, George. It's uh, really great to be back um, and speaking to you again. And absolutely, a very exciting news coming out of Brazil that, um, you know, after being jailed on false charges, uh, Lula is now being elected president of Brazil. And the former right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, is uh, now in Miami, in uh, understanding Orlando, Miami, like many uh, uh, disgraced former right-wing politicians in Latin America. So that's um, the situation in Brazil. And the Lula's uh, inauguration speech, I think, laid out his priorities going forward, a speech in which he um, shed a tear in a moment of... Um, of touching vulnerability, you could say, when he was talking about the immense poverty that's been building up in Brazil, uh, especially over the last few years, where inequality has been growing, where unemployment has been growing, where uh, crime and violence, uh, as a result of these things, has also been growing. And he also touched on issues such as uh, protecting uh, the environment, as Many people know the devastating forest fires that destroyed much of the Amazon uh, during Bolsonaro's reign. He also stated very clearly 
about Brazil's commitment to Latin American integration. And Bolsonaro is someone that, um, certainly at least at the beginning of his term, looked more towards the United States than to Latin American neighbours. But at the end of his term, uh, he was uh, flying solo after uh, getting in his own personal fights with uh, President Biden. But the, the, the cause of Latin American unity and Latin American sovereignty have been left by the wayside. And as a result, the whole of Latin America is weaker because Brazil is, of course, the, the largest country in Latin America, the biggest economy, uh, one of the most important uh, economies in, in the entire world. So to have uh, a government that wasn't committed to building that Latin American unity was something that weakened the whole region. And now Brazil will be turning towards its, uh, its natural allies within the region, countries like Bolivia, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, for example, Venezuela where Bolsonaro, of course, had recognized the self-declared uh, politician Juan Guaido um, as the uh, so-called president of Venezuela and expelled the legitimate ambassador of the government of Nicolas Maduro. That has now uh, been annulled, um, and the Brazil now has restored relations with uh, the elected government of Venezuela, at the head of President Nicolas Maduro, and they've uh, restored full, uh, yeah, full, full diplomatic and, and political relations. They've even lifted uh, a law that uh, Bolsonaro had introduced, the banning uh, President Maduro from entering Brazil, uh, something that was very damaging for both countries because they, they share a border, uh, of course, and you know when you share a border with countries, there has to be a degree of cooperation, but um, the reckless policies of the previous government had, had broken down all those relationships within Latin America. So it's uh, incredibly important for Latin America as a whole to have a president committed to, to building forums, uh, like, for example, UNASUR that was destroyed by Bolsonaro, forums in which the countries of Latin America can come together discuss this you need to without the presence of the United States and Canada. And that's very important that the United States and Canada are only ever in favor of regional forums in which they are included. But of course, they have very different interests to countries of Latin America and uh, the, the organizations built in the early 2000s by people like Lula, by people like Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales um, will now begin a process of being rebuilt. So that that, that union among Latin America is uh, something that Lula is going to spearhead. He even discussed uh, the pos I mean, during the campaign the possibility of launching a, a currency for Latin America to trade it. Uh, this wouldn't be uh, like the euro, which people use in their day to day, this would be a currency for trading because, of course, in Latin America, trade is done in U.S. dollars uh, rather than uh, local currency. So Lula proposed a currency, uh, you know, so, so Latin America is no longer dependent on the U.S. dollar. These are some of the exciting policies that are being uh, proposed. Very interesting. We'll come to ex-president Juan Guaido uh, in a minute. I think he might be applying for the Chelsea job which uh, must uh, soon be available. Uh, but the uh, Bo Bolsonaro, uh, we haven't heard the last of him, have we? Uh, he is now ensconced with the gold-toothed emigres in Miami, uh, best place for him. Uh, but uh, he didn't give up uh, willingly. He didn't give up graciously. Uh, he stayed until the last possible minute. He avoided... Uh, Lula's inauguration. Uh, he 
nearly won the election. It was a close-run thing. Uh, and, of course, if he hadn't fallen out with Biden, he might, in those circumstances, have been tempted to hang on in the hope of a military coup. Or will the right in Brazil find another champion? In other words, is Bolsonaro the new Juan Guaido, uh, or is he a potential comeback king? Well, it'll have to be seen. I think uh, if Bolsonaro hadn't got in the, the, the scrap that he had with Joe Biden, he may still be president now, uh, having stayed through, uh, through a sort of Fujimori-style self-coup. And it's quite an interesting dynamic, really, and it shows the lack of political nous on the part of Bolsonaro, which would suggest that perhaps he, he won't be uh, uh, coming back as a figure in politics. And that is that, of course, when President Trump was in power, Bolsonaro was a very close ally of the United States. Um, they were friends on a personal level. And then when Joe Biden was elected, uh, he himself, especially Bolsonaro's sons, uh, continued essentially running a campaign for on behalf of Donald Trump, his children, who play a big role in the Brazilian government, uh, were talking about the, you know, the, the idea that the election was stolen from Trump. And so this put the Brazil in a collision course with the United States. And now, of course, the United States, I think, you know, Joe Biden, if Bolsonaro had been willing to play ball, Joe Biden would have been more than happy to, uh, to, to give Bolsonaro a helping hand. But I think uh, Bolsonaro didn't have the, the, the political nous to, um, you know, maintain uh, some sort of alliance with the new administration in the United States. And so when the election time came, and they were unwilling to, uh, to support his fantasies of a coup. And I think that's definitely what he wanted to do. Before the election even took place, when all the polls showed that Lula was uh, on course for victory, he started talking about how the, uh, the, the election system is unreliable. Um, and you know, open to to being rigged for for Lula. Of course, this is the he, of course he's the one in power at that time. Um, of course, that was the same election system which he was elected on um, four years prior. But that was preparing the ground for a possible self coup, as you'd say. Um, but I think his you know, a lack of political strategy and not making friends with the White House, I think, uh, left that, that idea dead in the water. Now he's in Orlando. I saw, uh, I saw a picture yesterday, him in a KFC, enjoying uh, some, uh, some chicken. And I, I think he may be dedicating himself to that over the next couple of years. Trump, he, he might well have been meeting up with Donald Trump uh, for, a, for a burger uh, and coke. Uh, Oli, the... Uh, how would what can we do now about this Juan Guaido, who uh, has now been derecognized by Brazil? Uh, he has been kicked out by the Venezuelan opposition. He's no longer even the leader of the opposition, and yet all kinds of countries, including incredibly our own, the United Kingdom, recognizes somebody called Juan Guaido as the entirely fictitious president of the great oil-producing giant Venezuela. Uh, and in fact, the Bank of England has given Venezuela's gold to this guy, Juan Guaido. Where is that gold? 
And where is Juan Guaido in this now changed diplomatic picture? You're right. The, the United Kingdom or the Bank of England uh, is holding more than one billion dollars uh, worth of gold uh, that belongs to the people of Venezuela, to the, uh, the Venezuelan public, and in which in 2019, when the Venezuelan government wants to withdraw that to, to weather some of the some of the effects of the economic sanctions of the United States that were triggering, you know, food shortages, medicine shortages. Uh, and so, of course, the Venezuelan government tried to recoup all the assets they had to try and uh, provide, a, provide a cushion for, for people during that time. And the, the British government decided, actually, no, we are now keeping a hold of that gold. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's essentially no longer yours. Juan Guaido and these officials... Uh, with assets like this, also in the United States, the oil company Sitco, which belongs to the Venezuelan government, was essentially uh, take was essentially taken over by the U.S. government. Um, and Juan Guaido is always trying to get hold of these sort of billion, multi-billion uh, dollar assets. Now that strategy of recognizing, uh, you know, a man that declared himself president in the street in, in 2019, uh, has clearly failed. The, the majority, almost no Latin American countries recognize him uh, as president anymore. Uh, I believe uh, Paraguay and Uruguay still still do, um, but the the rest of the countries. You know, surrounding Venezuela no longer recognize it, um, and they've now restored relations with. The, the, the elected government of Venezuela, for President Nicolas Maduro. But um, for the United States, it's a difficult one because they clearly no longer want to... Well, they, they can see that this strategy has failed as a strategy that began under President Trump and then continued under President Biden almost entirely. But now it's become clear that, that it's, it's no longer realistic. However, they don't want to be seen to be climbing down. Um, but the other complicating factor, of course, for the United States is that they uh, they have now sanctioned Russia, um, which has not disrupted energy markets uh, on a tremendous level. And bringing back Venezuelan oil onto the global markets is something that could stabilize energy prices, that could you know, stop some of the uh, runaway fuel prices that we're seeing in, in places like Europe and, and the UK, etc. Um, however, they, as I said, they don't want to be seen as climbing down. They don't want to make a move that will benefit the government of the Nicolas Maduro. But of course, they're now left with fewer and fewer options because their strategy to get rid of Maduro has failed. Also, they need Venezuelan oil. And there are negotiations going on right now. Uh, closed-door negotiations between uh, officials of, uh, of the U.S. government and the Venezuelan government about how Venezuelan, gov uh, Venezuelan oil can bring back. And, of course, the context to all this, which is very important for me, uh, the most important story coming out of Latin America over the past few years is the economic recovery of Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela's economy was destroyed by U.S. sanctions, uh, you know, particularly around 2018, 2019, was the worst of it, um, GDP just absolutely collapsing, oil production absolutely collapsing. And now what we're seeing is Venezuela is the fastest growing economy in South America. It's getting double-digit 
GDP growth uh, on, a, on a yearly basis. And in fact, 2021 was the first year since sanctions began where they had positive economic growth rather than negative economic growth. And inflation, monthly inflation is now down to, to single figures, around 7 8%. Uh, which is lower than, for example, Argentina, um, and you know, with, from a high of triple figures monthly inflation at the height of U.S. sanctions, and so Venezuela has managed to restore uh, oil production at over a million barrels a day now, uh, which is ten times what they had at the at the height of the sanctions. So Venezuela is in a much stronger position to negotiate if this crisis, uh, this conflict in Ukraine that happened in 2018 or 2019, Venezuela wouldn't have many cards to play. They were in a very desperate situation. However, they no longer are. So now they can demand respect for, for their sovereignty in exchange uh, for, for their oil coming back onto the global markets. Fascinating. Now, quickly, uh, Oli, although they deserve longer, uh, Christina is uh, out of the game, or is she? Uh, as a result of uh, conviction, many people, including me, believe a trumped-up conviction. And the poor president of Peru has been deposed. Tell us as uh, succinctly as you can, and no one can do it more succinctly than you, uh, about these two little vignettes. Yes, Argentina has had an incredibly difficult year. Uh, now, it now has the highest inflation in South America, higher than Venezuela. That's a hangover from the, the era of President Macri, who was uh, brought in the IMF, indebted Argentina up to his eyeballs. Um, and there's, uh, the, the levels of debt are simply too difficult to recover from at this point. And the runaway inflation has caused a massive disappointment among people in the government led by President Alberto Fernandez, in which Cristina Fernandez is the vice president. And Cristina within that is a left-wing faction within the government, and she is calling for a much more aggressive approach against the IMF. Um, and actually, I think that approach could mean that she could stand as president at the next elections and get quite a lot of support, including from people who are disappointed in this government, because she has a, a critique of what's going on. And, um, yeah... Definitely very interesting. Before I move on to Peru, I just want to say that I was in when I was lucky enough to be in Buenos Aires for the World Cup final and to join the people celebrating. And today, right now in Peru, there's a there's a general strike going on across the country, mass protests going on uh, in every in every town and city in the country, um, mostly from uh, unions, uh, rural campesino, indigenous unions uh, against the. The, the unelected government that's taken power in Peru in very similar terms that happened in, in Bolivia in 2019. Uh, like what happened here in 2019, there's been a numerous massacres, around 30 dead. That number could climb. Uh, we're going to keep an eye out for that. Of course, this has all received the support of, uh, of, of, of the United States and the deposed president, Pedro Castillo is, is currently in prison. He's been sentenced to 18 months uh, uh, preventive detention. I mean, he, he hasn't been charged of anything, but he will be now in jail for uh, at least 18 months. And then the uh, new uh, pro while investigations are held. And the demand of people in the streets is not only to bring back uh, the president, Pedro Castillo, but also to bring about a new constitution. 
That's because Peru's current constitution was built, was made uh, during the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori, which was who was uh, the last dictator of Peru in the 90s, again supported by the United States, uh, in which you know all of Peru's natural resources are privatized by law, by constitution, uh, and the, the, the inequality is essentially entrenched in that constitution. Mm-hmm. So what people, especially in, in rural areas, want to see is a new constitution in which natural resources can be recovered for, uh, you know, for the public sector and that wealth used to develop and bring people out of poverty. And now we're seeing this this huge divide between urban and rural and uh, uh, including within the left itself in middle class, urban left, perhaps more concerned with issues such as environmentalism or or identity issues, whilst in rural areas we see unions organising around this idea of taking back natural resources and fighting against inequality. So that's the the big divide right now in Peru, which is playing out in in an incredibly violent uh, manner. Oli Vargas, you're a walking encyclopedia. Thank you very much for uh, giving us a glimpse of what's happening in Latin America. In Brazil, Caio, welcome to the show. Hi, George. Can you hear me? Very clearly. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just come back from Brazil, uh, just a little bit before Lula inauguration, and... I was very happy, but at the same time, uh, instead, Lula victory is a defeat of the right extremists. Uh, still, the country is very divided. But I would like to make clear that uh, I think uh, Lula's victory is a message of peace uh, and respect for black people, for women, for indigenous people. And I think this message has to go all around the world because I feel that um, we're still a very divided world and uh, Lula's victory and his comeback as a leader is a comeback and a message of inspiration for us to try to negotiate peace once again. And I think people from all over the world, especially people who are now feeling very uh, aggressive against people, maybe in Russia, maybe against their neighbor, that take this message of people to their heart. And I think Lula can play a very important piece, maybe try to bring uh, negotiations of peace between Russia and the U.S., because we know that uh, the heart of the matter is not just uh, Ukraine and Russia, but NATO, uh, the West, in a way, in how it is treating its Russian partners, right? Uh, So my main point is to bring this message that we can, you know, maybe uh, be a little sympathetic to the other side and try to create peace more than just uh, oppose our foes and treat everyone who is different than us as, uh, as, uh, as an enemy or as a foe or something like that. And also, I would very much important like call, to thank you uh, for your... Important call. Uh, It's most kind of you. Sorry to cut you off when you were going to thank me, but I need to take a quick break and...
Happy New I was listening to you speak to one of the callers about the uh, elementary school sexualization of children and the introduction of gender reassignment to young children without yeah. their parents' knowledge or consent. And this is very curious to me because I've heard of it happening over here. Now I've heard of it happening in Scotland. That means it's got to be some sort of a broad-based program, but I'm not aware of it being due to any grassroots desire on part of the public. It's somebody's idea. Whose idea could it be? And what could they hope to accomplish with this? Well, that's uh, my point, Robert. I am I, opposed to lots of things, but I generally understand uh, why they're happening and why the people promoting them are doing so. Uh, why, uh, why events develop in the way that they do. Having been around a long time, more than 50 years in politics, I have a pretty good handle on most things, but on this I do not. And so I constantly ask myself, am I going mad? Is it because of my age? Uh, why can't I compute this? I have never met anyone who wants primary school children to be allowed to reassign themselves as Johnny or Jillian at school, change their clothes, be called a different name at school without their parents' knowledge, uh, with the teachers being permitted to do it without telling the parent. I I've never met anyone who could possibly want that. I've never met anyone who wanted to give children a push down a gender reassignment path that will be, to say the least, extremely painful. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, in terms of their mental health, there's tons of evidence that it will be a very rocky road and one not embarked upon lightly. I've never met anyone who thinks that whilst it should be illegal for a child to smoke at 16, that they should, at the age of 12, be taking hormones and beta blockers to redirect the path of their gender development. I've never met any such person. I cannot imagine what such a person would be like. That it, you're too young to vote, you're too young to smoke, to drink, to gamble, to buy a lottery ticket, but you can change your sex? What kind of madness is this? Or is it me that's mad, Robert? That is really my point. Last one to you. Well, uh, nor have I met anyone, and the only thing that comes to my mind is that we're living in an information age where it can be argued that data is worth more than money, especially when money is created out of thin air as it is. So someone wants to collect data by experimenting on us, on the human race, and that uh, includes children. Somebody's getting data from these procedures, and what they want to do with it, uh, we can only guess. But uh, I know data must be okay. being well, gathered. Well, let's uh, keep guessing. Yeah, let, let, let's keep guessing, Robert, uh, because we 
mustn't uh, go quietly into this good night. At least I will not, even if I'm the last man standing. But uh, on the 12th, a loyal supporter of the show, Erobos in New York. He is from the People's Party, of course. Go ahead, Erobos. Salubrious evening, George. How are you this evening? By his grace, I'm good. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. Yes, and I'm happy, as you said, to, to reinforce Nick's uh, dynamic and brilliant interview, and I appreciate you very much for having him on and, and by him via us at the People's Party for the movement on the 19th, which would be a sort of co-junction co with yours in uh, the 25th over there in the UK. Um, and it's, it's one of the few things I'm optimistic about. I plan to go to D.C. myself and put in a lot of sweat equity and um, do as much as I can to get this off the ground and get it happening because we don't have an anti-war movement anymore. And this was, this is intended to re-energize that effort. I know I don't, I don't think people, um, they don't, they don't understand the gravity of what's at stake because to them it's cerebral, right? It's, uh, they, they understand nuclear war from a movie, from some sort of Hollywood thing or a TV show or a cartoon. They don't, they don't really feel the urgency of it and it's not expressed, at least during the Cold War from my understanding even though I wasn't born then, at least during the Cold War, you know, even they had those ridiculous exercises in school, the kids jumping under the, uh, the table there, under the bench, you know, they, they, they press the urgency of how serious this is, right, with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the missiles pointed uh, from Turkey to Russia. People had a, a more active sense of what, what's at stake, and we don't have that now, and I think... Um, we have to do as much as we can to interrupt this process because no, none of us are going to be left. Right? Once that first missile goes off, none of us are going to be left to, to regret and to cry and to cut a shit of what is. So we, we all have to do what we can to interrupt this process. That's a one-way trip. It's a one-way street. There's no coming back from it. And I applaud you and the great work that you've done. And you always stress the urgency to the audience, to the international audience as an internationalist. And um, I, I definitely appreciate you having us on today. And uh, more power to you, the Workers' Party of Great Britain, the People's Party. And we need this. We really, really need this. Well, uh, that's such a powerful uh poetic almost uh, call um, I, I, I'm tempted just to leave it hanging there uh, but I think I should say this uh, first of all it's sobering to learn that you weren't born during the Cold War I certainly was and I recall vividly it's one of my earliest memories being a child who lived not 20 miles, probably not 10, from a Royal Air Force base called Lukers in Fife, uh, lying in bed, hearing an airplane, as I often did, from Lukers, and wondering if it was the airplane carrying the nuclear bomb that was going to end the world during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Though I was a small child, 
uh, of six years old, I had absorbed the anxiety, fear of my parents, uh, who endlessly were discussing it and international events in general. And I went to bed fearful and woke up to the sound of this Royal Air Force plane. I remember it vividly. It may be one of the very earliest memories I have. And I lived through many crises. Okay, we'll leave it at uh, that a wonderful uh, evening uh, with George Galloway and all his scholars and friends. Really, you know, what's coming through. But, uh, you know, we in the House of Islam are prepared to meet our maker. And if should it come to that, well, the best place to be is to be with our creator and maker, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did. And I would like to thank uh, Luke Colo for doing a brilliant engineering from the team. And I till we meet you again, uh, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.